I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You may be seated. I want to give you the sermon outline first as you're preparing this message so that you could have a conceptual sense of where we're going. Point number one. Suffering is normative for the Christian life. Second, joy is critical to obedience. And third, and very importantly, God's grace is sufficient. To give you a bit of a background, if you read verse 17, you begin to wonder, uh, why is Paul talking about his scars? And apparently the false teachers in Galatia were slandering Paul and some of the Galatians were now beginning to follow false teachers. This was not unusual for Paul as he began doing gospel ministry throughout the entire Mediterranean region, even going as far as Spain. He would plant churches, commit them to God, the anxiety of the church and the work would be upon him, and sometimes false teachers would come into the church and wreak havoc. There is a point towards the end of his life, he would say that even all of Asia has turned away from him. The very people that he's planted in the Lord, fostered them in the faith, had turned away. And to these false teachers, he makes a powerful declaration. Read verse 17 here. He says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In other words, let the critics who cause me trouble, who seek comfort, money, popularity, and ease, let them show you even one scar for Christ. Whereas let them close their mouths. And he knew they didn't have any. In fact, earlier he said that they were preaching a false gospel for the very purpose of not suffering persecution. And then he goes on to say, on the other hand, I have the battle scars to prove my love for Jesus. Talk is cheap. Wounds talk. Now what exactly are the marks of Jesus, if you're thinking to yourself this morning, if you're asking to yourself, what are the marks of Jesus? It is any and all suffering for the name of Jesus. The marks of Jesus could be a black eye due to a punch in the face while evangelism. My father, still this day, gives out tracts. Several times that's happened to him. One time ended up in the hospital because a guy just pushed him. He's old. He's in his 60s. Onto the floor. Had severe back pain. Hospitalization. But that's marks for the Jesus. Or it could be poverty because of an $80,000 fine that the government imposed on you for failing to support homosexual marriage or you being a teacher in a public school now with Obama's new legislation that now forces you to use transgender language, locker rooms, and bathrooms. That's the age you live in. 
you lose that job, you get fined $80,000 as an in-owner, the police arrest you because they maintain the law rather than God's law, and that's the mark of Jesus. The marks of Jesus come in various forms, but they're there. The mark of Jesus is the cross, and Jesus said that every single one of his disciples, past, present, and future, must take up his cross in order to be a follower of Christ. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the temptation for church planters and pastors is to take this text and say, man, if we do that, no one's going to come to our church. we got to water this down. The question I want to ask all of you here this morning, do you have the marks of Jesus? And if you don't, are you willing to get them? Because if you will, you will have them. Without shame, Paul wore these scars as a badge of honor. Where do these marks come from? Let's let Paul tell us with his own words. 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman because Christians shouldn't be boasting, right? Even about their scars for Christ. So he's saying, I'm talking like a madman. But you guys are making me do this. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death... Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. In other words, the thirty-nine whippings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That right there will leave marks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger of rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me, of my anxiety of all the churches. Something that pastors are very well aware of and leaders are very well aware of as they bear the anxiety of the church. Those were the sources of Paul's wounds 2,000 years ago, but the marks of Jesus are still being imprinted on Christ followers today. You may not get 39 lashings because we don't do that anymore, but you will receive marks. Pastors and leaders especially bear them because they share, in verse 28 with Paul, anxiety for the church. We fear, as hard as we work, all of this is in vain. False teachers, false voices come in, lead people astray. And pastors feel it. A number of years ago, when John Piper was speaking to a conference of pastors, the Shepherds Conference, because he knows about this, he told the audience of pastors the following story. He said, I recently received a letter, and I'm going to use false names here because I don't know 
if this person wants this out. The letter reads, Two weeks ago, my brother Joe was shot as he sat in his hut in northern Uganda. Joe and his wife Frances are missionaries to the Muslim tribe Aringa in northern Uganda, which is three miles from the Sudanese border. Frances and Joy, their five-month-old daughter, had just re-arrived in the States for a short visit since they've been gone over a year. Joe, however, remained in Africa. Two days after Francis's arrival, Joe and Martin were sitting together in the living area of the hut one evening when they heard a strange sound outside. Joe suspected trouble. He jumped up, kicked the door shut just before a spray of bullets were released, and the bullets exploded through the door, hit Joe on his shoulder and Martin on his lower arm. And the letter continues to explain that the assailants broke in, demanded money, as they dragged the two men around. And as they were being dragged around, they were crying out for Jesus to save them. Then suddenly, the soldiers lowered their weapons and walked away. The men spent five hours without any medical aid, and they still survived. Now that story had a happy ending. But we all know stories that have less earthly happy endings. And Piper concludes the story telling an audience of pastors, this is normal. Woe to the church that doesn't teach their young people that this is normal. I said, wow. Burning on my heart as I prepare preparing this message is that I know as the pastor of this church, I must lead by example. John Piper spoke in that conference of always asking his wife every year whether or not they should leave their church at Bethlehem as pastor and wife and go to the mission field. For every, even in New York City, there's a scarcity in Christians, we recognize that, but they still have Bibles. There are people around the world right now who are completely unreached. And, unbe- and believers, your heart ought to throb for those people. And the question I must always ask myself, am I demonstrating the marks of Jesus to my congregation? Am I willing to go to a mission field far away, abandoning everything familiar for the sake of Christ? Am I willing to ask myself continually, should I close this and go? Am I willing to suffer for His name? It runs in my family as well. My father-in-law, my wife's father, did the same thing. He was a church planter right here in Queens, and eventually he closed and he went to India. He's still there. But I think Piper's right. I think pastors always ask themselves the question, how can I bear the marks of Christ all the more? About three weeks ago, I preached a sermon on Christian persecution wherein I asked the question, is it possible to live a life without suffering and quietly go into heaven? And because we don't have beheadings and crucifixions in this country, some of us have a tendency to think that it is quite possible. Some of you here, mustard seed won't let you think that, but some of you are still here thinking that. 
that it is possible to have the good life and have Jesus too. The Christian life for some of you is nothing more than supporting the right causes, staying away from drugs, pornography, and cursing, listening to Christian music instead of secular music, attending a church with perhaps a good band, coffee, and fellowship, that's important, and once in a while, when the conscience bothers too much, sending money to overseas missionaries. In fact, by and large, the good life is equatable to the Christian life for many of us. And as the pastor of America's largest church, if you think I'm wrong on this, think about this. America's largest church, Joel Osteen's church, has always told his members, you have the right through Jesus to have your best life now. And I say, woe to me if I ever teach you that. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All and will be are comprehensive, exhaustive terms. It doesn't leave anyone out. Which means you cannot be a Christian and not be persecuted. And the harsh truth is that the American version of Christianity looks nothing like the biblical version. Churches try to market instead of minister. And instead of a church being a training facility for equipping saints, as per Ephesians 4.12, it instead becomes a weekend hobby perhaps, at worst, but at best nothing more than a comfortable fellowship setting. And pastors actually start competing for business along those terms. It is no wonder, then, that people are shocked when biblical churches actually start holding people accountable from anything from tithing, faithful attendance, and church discipline, that they then become offended. They're not used to that. I went through a book recently with my leaders, and we were surprised just how far we are from biblical Christianity in this country today. You know, somewhere along the line, we've fallen for the lie that Jesus is the means to our comfort. The message of bearing one's cross and following Jesus the leader has been replaced with a message of tepid, goose-bump spirituality that smells and emulates the world. Several, several years ago, I, was, I, I heard a story by a Cistercian monk, which is part of a Catholic church, they're an order of monks that always maintain silence. Perhaps you've heard of them. And a radio interviewer in Italy asked the abbot, the head of this monastery, what if you were to realize that at the end of your life, atheism is true, and that there is no God? And the abbot replied, Holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. Even without the promise of a reward, I will have used my life well. Now at first, that sounds like a very profound statement. That sounds good. But the Apostle Paul actually tells us the very opposite. 1 Corinthians 5.19 He says this, If the resurrection is a lie, 
And if in this life alone we have hope, then of all people we are to be most pitied. Whoa! So this Catholic monk is like, you know what, if God doesn't even exist and the resurrection is all false, my life would have been used well. And Paul says, no, no, no. If the resurrection is false and this whole thing is a myth, you're pitiful. Why would he say that? The normative biblical Christian life is not the white picket fence, the well-paying job, the healthy family, and having the goodies in life. Neither is it quiet, comfortable isolation and peaceful solitude for the rest of your life. Christianity in false is the most foolish way to spend one's life. So let me show you what normative Christianity was for Paul and what it is for most Christians today. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what it says. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and beholding, we live as punished and not yet killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. I want to just look at that section and ask a simple question. Beatings, hardships, calamities, slander, afflictions, and imprisonments. I wonder how many people would line up for our churches if Christianity was sold this way. I don't think many. That church down in Texas would be empty in a moment. First century Christianity did not look like American Christianity. I keep telling you this. You might think I'm lying to you and I'm weird because all the other churches do it differently. I'm not. You see, for first century Christians, they realized that if the resurrection is true, eating, drinking, entertaining yourself, going on exotic vacations, enjoying yourself to the max in this life, and oh yeah, putting Jesus in there somewhere, that was going to be a foolish way to live. Going to the hard places for Jesus, if Christianity is a myth, is absolutely to be pitied. Why in the world would you do that? But Paul is clear, because the resurrection is a fact, and Jesus is Lord of all, then though the world mocks and pities us, we can look at the world with great joy and say, don't pity us, great joy is awaiting me, because God has given me a reward of hard work and suffering. And yes, I said, reward. 
the Chinese pastor and his wife who stood in front of that bulldozer that was going to decimate their church in China and thereby had his wife killed by the bulldozer, I tell you right now, he is going to stand up here. That pastor will tell you, don't pity me and my wife. We had the privilege of dying. The world will pity and we will pity the world. They don't know. They just don't see. See, that sort of joy is critical for Christians to obey God in the midst of suffering. When suffering occurs, and I see that kind of radical obedience, I ask myself, how are they able to obey when a bulldozer is coming right at them? How? I'll tell you how. 2 Corinthians 6.10 Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Then go to Romans 5.3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. What are you mad? You are rejoicing in your sufferings? Who says this? Who says that? Here's an amazing thought. Those who suffer for Jesus are more likely to endure till the end in their faith. Now, how does one rejoice in his sufferings? How does one rejoice in his sufferings? Or better yet, why does one rejoice in his sufferings? And why is joy so essential to Christian obedience in the midst of suffering? Well, first, in having joy in the midst of suffering, we follow the footprints of Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did it. And that's why He was obedient in the midst of suffering. But second, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know our sufferings serve a purpose. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Took away all the other side chairs today. Church has been suffering. No question. But I know that is preparing for us a weight of glory. I know it without a shadow of a doubt. It's humbling to now have this. But I said, what's the point? Get it down. Because when we're humble, we're in the right place with God. Suffering is preparing us for heaven. It is quite unimaginable that a man like Paul, having gone through what he did, would say all of that was a light and momentary affliction. You get shipwrecked and stoned, and just that's just it. Forget the, the 39 whippings and stuff. I wouldn't necessarily call that light and momentary. But he does. Because in light of the glory of heaven that's coming, that's what their suffering is. It's as if he's saying... The more pain I endure for Jesus, the more glory I'm going to get. 
That's the point of this text. Your suffering for Christ here is going to get you greater glory later. And Paul, by God's grace, was able to see that glory and that's how he was able to say, that's the price for this? Light and momentary. The verse implies that we must actually believe that Jesus is a reward waiting for us in heaven, that God is waiting for us. Not the streets of gold, but God. One of the reasons why we don't suffer is because God as treasure does not excite us. An athlete will never go through the pains of training if he didn't really think there was a price to be had. None of you would go to work if you knew that your employer would never pay you. You go because you believe there will be a payout. Our eyes are set on heaven, and that's not merely a fanciful myth, but a rock-solid reality. And that's why we rejoice. Our suffering is preparing for us glory. And God is working all things together for good. And that verse is thrown around so easily. But the reality is, He ultimately works for our good. Where? In heaven, not on earth. To be honest with you, many of our sufferings here are never explained. You go to a woman whose mother's, die, whose, whose mother's dying of cancer, or, or worse, who, her three-year-old child is dying of cancer. And you give her Romans 8.28 and she might look at you and say, I have no clue as to how my son dying right now is working for my good. Think about it. Three-year-old son, terminal cancer, you go and say, God is working all things together for good. And the mother looks at you, how in the world is my son dying working for my good? Miscarriages. A godly father dying in a car accident. How is it working for good? And it's faith in eternity that keeps us going. That one day in eternity we're going to look at the glories around us and we're going to say it makes sense. I want you to listen very carefully. Your joy, if ultimately rooted in Christ will not disappear when suffering appears. However, if your joy is rooted in anything other than Christ, your joy will vanish. The reason why we count it all joy when suffering occurs is that suffering has the ability to refine our faith. It has an amazing ability to reveal our idols to us. I'm going to say that one more time. Suffering has the amazing ability to reveal idols. When you suffer, and instead of joy, you have anger and bitterness, then your joy was not ultimately rooted in Christ. It was either in your son, in that relationship, in your health, in the size of your church, whatever. Suffering has an ability to reveal our idols. Let me show you what true joy in Christ looks like. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3. Listen to this. 
Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be in the vines, the produce, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yields no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Joy in who? The God of my salvation. This is a joy in a future forever with Christ that enables us to obey God in the midst of suffering. Because without this, without if you're not enjoying Christ today, then when suffering comes, your faith will be decimated. It will be. One of my greatest abilities to discern as a pastor when people's faith are genuine is when they go through very difficult times and they come out on the other end with joy in Christ. And I see that from time to time and I love men and women like that. I've also seen men and women who fail during suffering and it's quite revelatory. If God took away your fig tree, your blossoms, your vines, your flocks, it's another way of saying, if He took away your money, your bank account, your son, your daughter, your wife, your laptop, your phone, if He took all that away, your degree, if He took everything away from you, would you still rejoice because of the God of your salvation? Would you? Or would you curse God and die? I'm going to say this again. Future joy in Christ is critical for present obedience to Christ. Future joy in Christ. In other words, heaven is real. Joy with Jesus forever is real. That's your all-consuming ultimate reality. You're not going through the motions of church. That's real for you inside. If that's real, if future joy in Christ is real for you, that will then allow you to have present obedience in Christ. I want to give you two examples here. A hundred years ago, in Turkey, when Muslims conquered Turkey, they would go into villages and then round up all the Christians and line them up. So imagine this old wall, you line them all, all the Christians up. And they will go down the line and ask every person one question. Do you worship Christ or Allah? If the answer was Christ, immediately the sword went through their abdomen. Massive genocide in Turkey, 100 years ago. Look it up. Now, if you had 20 people on a line, you were the seventh person on that line, and you saw one, two, three, four, didn't, five, six, and then they got to you. What would cause you to be obedient to Christ and not, not renounce Christ? It will be whether or not you were living in the joy of Christ every single day prior to that moment. Without future joy in Christ being your propelling, propelling motivation, you will deny Him on the spot. Without joy in Christ, it is impossible. You will take greater joy in the saving of your life than in Christ. You can only endure 
suffering if the joy of Jesus is constantly set before you. And so joy is critical for Christian obedience in the midst of suffering, whether it be sword or cancer. I'm asking you today, prepare your hearts with joy in Christ today. Why? Because you may not face a a Turkish army, but you will face cancer. You will face job loss. You will face the the loss of a loved one. And you will not stand for Christ if you're not taking joy in Christ today. Future joy in Christ enables present obedience to Him. Second example. Because you're thinking Turkey, it brought it close, but still not close enough. So let me bring it closer. This happened in America last year. Remember a gunman walked into a community college in Oregon last October, killed nine, wounded seven. And according to CNN, the killer, who was a 26-year-old who hated Christians, walked into one classroom, and according to Stacy, whose daughter was wounded at the school, quote, he, asked, he started asking people one by one what their religion was. Are you a Christian? He would ask them. And if you're a Christian, stand up. And they would stand up, and he said, good, because you're a Christian, you're going to see God in one second. And he shot them, one by one. Some of you have a hard time evangelizing on your campuses because you're ashamed. You want to know what courage is? Courage is the second Christian who saw what happened to the first Christian who stood up, but stood up anyway. That's courage. And that's joy in a future Jesus that propels obedience. Why was he willing to take that bullet for Christ? Again, the joy of joining Christ in eternity is set before him. Without joy in God, we will crumble. Again, if God took everyone and everything away from you that you hold dear, your children, your loved ones, your money, everything, will you still rejoice because of the God of your salvation? Listen, the message of Christianity, don't let anyone fool you, it's a very simple message. God, through Jesus, has given you Himself. And if that's not enough to enthrall you with the light and enable you to run this race till the end, then you're not saved. Have no shame of declaring that, and you were never saved. Jesus is not the means to your end. He is the end. He's your greatest joy, especially when your world falls apart. And so you have a choice to make as you're sitting here today. And my question really is simple. Are you sure you want to sign up for this? Are you sure you want to sign up for this? Are you prepared to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Are you going to find full sufficiency and joy in Christ alone so you could continue to be obedient to God in the midst of suffering? If not, there's an open door in the back. You're free to walk out.
Everything worthwhile in life costs time, resources, and labor. Everything. It's the cheap, easy things in life that are not worth having. Prior to the birth of every single one of my children, my wife and I had to ask ourselves, are we willing to bear the cost? Not just about the nine months of morning sickness, the labor pains, the countless sleepless nights afterwards, but literally discipling this person until the age of 21 or what have you. Caring for this person. Is a child worth having? The cost is heavy. But the answer kept coming back, yes, and so by the grace of God, we have four. God has so made this world to reflect spiritual realities. If heaven is worth having, then life on earth will be difficult. Anything in life, by the way, mirrors that reality. That's worth having. Fast food is easy and cheap to grab, but good food takes time, money, and effort. Getting rid of a spouse is easy to do. Working at a marriage is hard and difficult. God has made the path to hell very simple. It's very easy. God has made everything else, the road to reality of heaven, a very difficult one. Instead of me talking about it, let's let Jesus issue the call. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. You're all familiar with this. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned, and Jesus said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether or not he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And we read that and we go, he can't literally mean that, right? Let's go back to verse 25. You know how this passage begins? Now great crowds accompanied him. I could imagine the disciples very excited. They look around and they're thinking, we're going to become rock stars. This is awesome. Just fed 5,000 huge crowds. And he turns to Jesus and they say, Jesus, look, everyone's looking for you. Another text actually says that. They came to Jesus and said, all men seek you. And Jesus looks out in the crowd and then he goes out 
And instead of giving a rallying cry, he goes out and gives a speech that so thins the herd that the Apostle John writes that many deserted him. Literally 12 men. 5,000 fed, day of Pentecost, 120 left. He looks at his disciples after giving the speech and he goes, will you leave as well? And Peter goes, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Which means they were following for other reasons. The disciples had true reasons for following. Jesus had a way of purifying, thinning the herd. And he does that. There's a great crowd, but at the end of the speech, not many people are left. What's the point of this passage? Well, certainly, I mean, there's, there's a practical aspect to it. I urge you guys who are students to finish your degrees. You, don't, you start a degree and you don't finish. People are going to mock you. You drop out of high school, you're going to get mocked. Why? Because there's a principle here. Our God is a God of completion. He didn't stop on the third day. He finished and then he rested on the seventh. Greatest words ever pronounced by Jesus on the cross. It is finished. Our God is a God of completion. Whatever you set your task hand to, finish it. And you know what? Part of the reason why we don't finish is because we don't carefully count the cost before we start. We jump into it, and then halfway through we realize, my goodness, I can't finish. And we get upset when people mock us, and Jesus said, you're supposed to get mocked. It was highly irresponsible of you to begin this thing if you knew you weren't going to finish. Such is the same thing for the Christian race. You jumped in, you started, perhaps because someone gave this altar call where God, he started off by saying, God loves you and wants to have a wonderful plan for your life. And so you got all excited and you jumped in, and yet Jesus' words here were not spoken. He said, there's going to be a cost, and nobody told you this. Which is why Jesus says, there are two other types of soil outside of the good soil, the rocky and the thorny soil, in which a person starts off the race well, and then they give up because they realize, this is not what I signed up for. It's tough, because it's a question that I need to ask myself. Do I love my children more than Jesus? I mean, certain parents, you could tell that they care more about their children than worship of God. Do you love your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend more than Jesus? Your job more than Christ? Count the cost is what Christ is trying to say. It says that great crowds were following Jesus, and in verse 25, he looked and he knew that a whole bunch of lukewarm fakes were following him. He fed 5,000, many were following. He fed 4,000, many were following. He gives this speech, and on the day of Pentecost, only 120 are left. Jesus was okay with that. Because after that, those few that remained, Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 come to Christ. He built his church on solid faith. But quite frankly, for many of us, as I was preparing this message and I was winding it down, I realized, Lord, these words are hard. These words are hard. And I'm going to be honest with myself. When I look at this, 
It's it's very hard. You, you got to hate your mother and your wife, your children, your father. So I close with this. Without blunting the words here, because these are true words, and I want all of you to aim for this. I close by adding to those words, Christ's grace is sufficient. Rely on it and keep running the race hard. Look at the last verse of this book of Galatians. Today we finish Galatians. Look at the last verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I find it highly remarkable and comforting that Paul calls the Galatians his brothers. And he gives them the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because if you study this letter carefully, and if you were here every Sunday, there were times, for example, in chapter 3, he calls them foolish. He says that they were bewitched. He literally whips them up and down with his words. To the point where you're reading, I'm reading this letter, and I'm thinking to myself, are these Galatians even saved? And yet, for these incompetent, stumbling, bumbling Galatians, he ends his letter by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And that's where we all stand, because I'm a Galatian. I stumble. The words are hard for me, and I don't match and meet the standard all the time. It's as if Christ is coming toward me at the end of each day, and with this last verse, after all the exhortation of running the race and living a high life for Christ, keeping that standard high, after all that, He then comes to us and He says, May the grace of God be with you. Do better, my child. I forgive you. Don't give up. Throughout my short life, God, by His grace, has enabled me to first serve as a teacher overseeing students, then as a master teacher overseeing high school teachers within a school, then a director overseeing a seminary's extension center, now a pastor overseeing a church, father overseeing wife and children. In each of these roles, I've realized just how much I need the grace of God in my life. And because of that realization, I want to leave you with a poem written by a person I can really relate to, an elementary school teacher, because I find it personally applicable and it highlights the foundational role that the grace of Christ plays in our lives. And I would say our daily lives. The poem is entitled, A New Start. I want you to listen. He came to me with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. So I took his sheet, all soiled and blotted, and I gave him a new one, all unspotted. And into his tired heart I cried, Do better now, my child. I came to the Father with the trembling soul. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear Master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day, all soiled and blotted, and he gave me a new one, all unspotted. And into my weary heart he cried, 
Do better now, my child. It's as if Paul is telling the Galatians, you guys have messed up. But today's a new day and you're still in Christ. Do better now, my child. Rely on the grace not to keep doing wrong, but rely on the grace to do better from now on and joyfully bear the marks of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.